The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. The crimes still remain a mystery. They are abnormal and unnatural as compared with ordinary crimes among men. No one, not even the expert, killed in the detection of crime can find a plausible motive. The mutilated bodies of the victims are always found in parts of the cities where crime is not expected or anticipated, and beyond the fact of the murders, we have never been able to penetrate. I have faith that the authors of these crimes will be discovered. No human is strong enough to hold such a secret. Some guilty conscience will unburden itself sooner or later. From the Midnight Assassin by Skip Hollinsworth Up a little closer, love mine. God up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy, like to make you comfy, cozy, cause I love you. Well, hello, Murder Bookies. Welcome to episode 54, The Remarkable Ghoul. On the Midnight Assassin, Panic, Scandal, and the Hunt for America's First Serial Killer by Skip Hollinsworth. I'm your host, Jill, and I love sharing the best true crime books with you, and The Midnight Assassin is one of these. In the last episode, 53, Ungodly Butchery, the assaults on the servant women escalate into murders, causing great consternation fear, and demands that the police catch the killer, who arrest many in the Black community with zero viable suspects. Jumping right into the story, on June 2nd, 1885, a shot was fired through the open window of Henri Talachette's servant quarters adjacent to his own home. The 42 caliber bullet hit a young Black servant woman, and a second whiz past Henri Talachette as he ran to the servant quarters to see what on earth was happening. Henri saw no shooter. Later that night, at the residence of Major John Stewart, the same man whose two servants had been attacked back in March, a stone was thrown through, you guessed it, the servant shanty window. Sleeping there was a black man because the women were terrified and asked him to stay there to protect them. Now he grabs his pistol and he ran after the rock thrower, Firing at him, but the man disappeared down an alley. Second in charge of the Austin PD, Sergeant Chenneville was at a loss. With no other recourse, he kept harassing black men, hoping that one would eventually say something revealing. One guy, Oliver Townsend, was on Chenneville's radar. He was a really gifted chicken thief. Small framed, light, Oliver was said to be able to sneak into a coop grab sleeping chickens, snap their necks, and vanish into the darkness. Okay, he's kind of stealthy. It does kind of sound a little familiar. Townsend was found at the Black Elephant, the Black Saloon in town, taken to jail and beaten within an inch of his life, with Oliver swearing he had nothing to do with the attacks or killing. Chained to the floor, he did not confess and was beaten again. No confession. So eventually, Oliver Townsend was released, just like everyone else who had been arrested. A deep fear of Chenneville and his bloodhounds grew. Black men took to walking down the street, arms held wide, indicating they carried no axes or knives. They also coated their feet with astaphadia, a strong-smelling putty made of treat roots, rotten vegetables, herbs, and spices, used since slavery to confound bloodhounds. As for servant women, Many quit their jobs and moved. Of those who stayed, some refused to leave their homes after sundown. Some slept inside their white employers' homes on the kitchen floors. Some clung to their mojo bags, hoping to keep the devil away. Others just prayed. And then, nothing. No attacks, no rocks. The most noteworthy thing that did happen was Officer William Howe, who had arrived to investigate the Molly Smith murder, he gave Governor Ireland's carriage a parking ticket to the great amusement of the newspaper. But had the killer moved on, no one knew. 
July 4th, Independence Day. Boat races on the Colorado were in full swing. Kids ran around trying to catch an oil pig. <laughs> I can see that. Tugs of war contests. Men playing horseshoes and enjoying the city park. The cornerstone of the new hotel, the Driscoll, was put into place. A $400,000 project complete with hydraulic elevators and flush toilets on the upper floors. It was to be the most sophisticated hotel west of St. Louis. Bands played, people cheered, and the city was thriving once again. Mayor Robertson and committee began to plan the 50th anniversary celebration of Texas's independence in March 1886, seven months away, certain it would, quote, ellipse anything ever attempted in Texas, end quote. August temperatures hit 100 degrees Fahrenheit or 37 degrees Celsius, so it is hot. With crews of men on water wagons spraying the streets to keep the dust down. Many residents went on vacation, visiting relatives, and those who remained enjoyed their semi-professional baseball team playoffs. Families enjoyed the air-cooled ice cream shops, men played cards in saloons, and salesmen sold newfangled soap that would remove all grease spots. Where is this soap? I want this soap. About midnight, a man made his way down the alley behind Valentine Osborne Weed's home. Valentine Weed was a successful businessman who owned a livery stable, so think a 19th century car rental or Uber. He rented horses, wagons, buggies, carriages. He lived in a lovely home about a block away from Dr. Lucian Johnson's, where Eliza Shelley had been killed. Sleeping in Valentine's kitchen were his servants, Rebecca Ramney and her 11-year-old daughter, Mary. Rebecca was a large woman, about 40 years of age, and her brother, Albert Carrington, was the Black City Alderman who I mentioned last episode. Mary attended school at the All-Black Central Grammar School, and in the afternoons, shadowed her mother helping with every chore. Rebecca planned for her daughter to attend Tillotson College and Normal Institute to become a teacher. The man in the alley approached slowly, cautiously. He made not a sound, closing in on the house, nor when he slipped onto the back porch, opening the kitchen door. He carried a foot-long club, about a third of a meter, containing several ounces of lead packed in sand, wrapped in buckskin. A leather strap hung from the bottom, wrapping around his wrist to secure the grip, as he loomed over Rebecca and Mary. Blinking, Rebecca tried to focus, seeing only a black silhouette shrouded in darkness as the club slammed into her skull with the sand muffling the sound. Rebecca was out cold. The man dropped the club and took little Mary. You've heard all the stories about the life and crimes of Ted Bundy, but have you heard the real-life accounts from his survivors, the attorneys who prosecuted him, the psychiatrist who analyzed him, or the sheriff who jailed him? If you're interested in the thoughts and feelings of people surrounding the Ted Bundy case and taking a deep dive into the psychology behind his actions, then we've got you covered. Crime authors and Ted Bundy experts E.J. Hammond and Fabian Richard provide you with the insights into the sights and sounds of the women Bundy brutalized, the officials involved in his apprehension, and the people who ensure he never saw another day of freedom in their new book, Ted Bundy, Memories of the Beast. You'll see previously unseen photographs provided by the people who knew Ted, learn previously unknown information about the steps that led Bundy to his downfall in Florida's electric chair, and delve into the details that few have accessed in the years since Bundy's execution. If this book sounds like something you or a loved one would enjoy, go to Amazon and search for Ted Bundy, Memories of the Beast. It would be criminal not to. Check it out, murder bookies. Hours later, Rebecca groaned loudly enough to wake Valentine Reed, who investigated a lit lantern in hand, his wife following. They found Rebecca on her knees, curled over, blood flowing from two gashes in her temple. Part of her forehead caved in, her jawline crooked, in horrible pain. She croaked, I'm sick. We'd asked where Mary was, but Rebecca didn't know. 
spying the club left behind, Weed grabbed his shotgun, yelling for neighbor Stephen Jacqua. Filling him in, the men approached the shanty. Later, Stephen Jacqua would say, quote, I carried the light and Mr. Weed pushed the door of the outhouse open with the barrel of his gun and we saw the girl lying on the floor, end quote. Mary's eyes were glassy, half open, blood coming from her ears and nose. Never a good sign. The jock regarding the crime scene, Mrs. Weed ran off to get Dr. Johnson, a brave woman to go off in the dark with some assassin running amok. Mr. Weed rode to fetch Sergeant Chenneville, who lived only a couple blocks away. Dr. Johnson came to examine Mary and realized there was nothing he could do for the poor girl. Quote, Whenever she took a breath, more blood flowed out of her ears. Another doctor, Richard Swearingen, also came to the shed, and the men conjectured that an intruder grabbed Mary, clamped a hand over her mouth, and carried her to the shed, where he jammed some sort of long iron rod into the cavity of one of Mary's ears, piercing one side of the brain. Then he pulled out the rod and jammed it again into her other ear, piercing the other side of her brain, essentially lobotomizing her before he ran out the back alley and vanished, end quote. Dr. Johnson cradled the little girl until life left her body. How oh, absolutely horrific. Ugh. Police found footprints in the alley next to the weed home. This time, Chenneville's hounds hit, tracking two blocks where a young black man named Tom Allen was asleep in a barn. Tom Allen was the man who worked the carts that sprayed the streets to deter dust during the summers. Arrested immediately on suspicion of murder, the crowd, dressed in their Sunday best, watched him be taken away. And then little Mary's body loaded into the undertaker's wagon, with Rebecca taken to the Negro ward of the hospital, a small room with few beds located down from the morgue. Speaking to reporters, Weed had nothing but good to say of Rebecca and Mary. Good workers, they were virtuous, leading an orderly life. Weed announced he was creating a reward fund to capture the killer. Evidence against Tom Allen was lacking. No one indicated that Tom Allen had any grievance against Rebecca and Mary, and he swore up and down he had nothing to do with the attacks. Frustrated, determined to make an arrest stick, Shenanville went to find troublesome Negro and petty thief Alec Mack, notoriously known for daring to drink from a white-only bucket on a hot day. Mack hadn't been in Austin until early in the summer, and when the police found him, his legs and feet were covered with astephedia. Aha! This was used to mask their scent from the bloodhounds. This was proof to Shenanville that Alec was up to no good. Alec claimed he didn't know Rebecca or Mary, and he had only wore the astephedia because he was hoping to avoid being bitten up by Chenneville's hounds. The cemetery now contained five murdered bodies, with accounts continuing to be all over the papers. Calls began to rehire the temporary police, as many as 20 this time. Impeaching Marshal Lee was considered too, given there was no progress in finding this evil villain. Austin's black leaders requested that they be given better police protection, period. After much debate, Mayor Robertson determined the best course of action was to hire a private detective, Captain Mike Hennessy. And so begins Part 3, September 1885 to Christmas Day 1885, a three-month period. In the late 1800s, Every Texas city had a private detective agency, and Austin was no exception. The work was largely mundane, guarding cattle, recovering stolen merchandise, and tracking down a check forger here and there. The exception was the Noble Commercial Detective Agency out of Houston, run by C.M. Noble, a former Houston sheriff, and John F. Morris, a former marshal with the Houston PD. They claimed to be as effective as the famous Chicago-based Pinkerton National Detective Agency, whose motto was known by every American, the eye that never sleeps. Noble's team of six detectives claimed that they were in daily communication with the Chicago Pinkertons. Truth was, they were not in communication with the Chicago Pinkertons at all, 
but it was a terrific marketing ploy. With Marshall Lee and Sergeant Cheneville befuddled as to what to do, Mayor Robertson hired Mark Hennessy. Go find the killer. September 9th, Mike Hennessy and Associates, George Hanna and Ike Himmel arrived. Using aliases, they checked into the Carrollton House Hotel with their bloodhound. Getting up to speed, they went to view the crime scene locations and interviewed the surviving servant women. Dressed in seedy disguises, they spent the evenings in the poorest saloons, eavesdropping, and debriefed back at the Carrollton House. The problem was the disguises were a bust as the rumor mill began grinding away that private detectives were in the city. Hennessy was here. Women swooned in the hotel lobby. Reporters swarmed trying to get interviews. And Hennessy thrived on the attention, telling the press that they were, quote, drawing a neat, pretty noose around a number of suspicious characters that developments may be looked for at any time, end quote. But any time came and went. A few more days in, at least one reporter began questioning if Hennessy had any idea how to catch a killer or the killers. With reporters hounding Hennessy, he explained that good detective work requires patience and facts would lead to a killer. By the end of September, Hennessy decided he needed to head home and take care of some personal matters. So what do you think happened the minute he left? All hell broke loose. This tells me the killer can read, and he has been reading the newspapers the whole time. Saturday, September 27, 1885. Two black servants hear a noise, seeing a man in the doorway, growling that he'd kill them if they opened their mouths. One screamed bloody murder anyway, and he ran off. The servant told Sergeant Cheneville this was a white man. Okay, this is his second time that one of the assailed had said it was a white man. Could this be why they hadn't found the killer in the black community? I think yes. The next night, Dr. Wade Morris's cook, who lived in the usual servant quarters behind the Morris house, began screaming after hearing a noise, even though she hadn't seen anyone. An hour later, W.B. Dunham was awakened by muffled cries coming from his servants' quarters. Dunham's cook, a pretty young black woman named Gracie Vance, shared her place with her boyfriend, Orange Washington. Two other young black women, Patsy Gibson and Lucinda Boddy, were staying there too, afraid to sleep in their own shanty. Realization hit Dunham like cold water. Gracie and Orange weren't arguing. Grabbing his pistol, Dunham ran down, horrified to see Lucinda Boddy stumbling out of the servant quarters, her head a bloody mess crying, quote, Mr. Dunham, we're all dead, end quote. Neighbor Harry Duff overheard the screams, coming to assist Lucinda, lantern in hand. Inside the shanty, Patsy Gibson was barely alive, her head bashed in. Orange was dead, face down on the floor, and Gracie was missing. Austin officers Jason Connor and Sergeant Cheneville galloped up, lanterns in hand, following the blood trail from the Shervin's quarters over a four-foot-high back fence into the Hotchkiss family yard, heading towards the stable, when they stumbled over something and in horror realized it was Gracie. Her face was viciously beaten, a mass of bone, skin, and blood. Her head was grotesquely off-center, her hair and nightgown soaked with blood, and a bloody brick lay next to her. Suddenly, Mrs. Hotchkiss from the upper floor bedroom shouted, quote, there he goes towards N-Town, end quote, thinking she'd seen someone running away. Cheneville and Connor fired eight shots into the dark, went and retrieved their horses, but they found no one. Once again, he had vanished. More police gathered, doing a house-by-house search, but no one had seen anything. They went towards the black neighborhood, but the streets were deserted, the homes closed up tight. Dr. C.O. Weller came to examine Lucinda and Patsy. Alive, they had each been hit once in the head with a blunt object, probably the back of an axe that was found next to Orange, his head split open. I think Orange would likely be the most threatening person to this killer, so he had to be dealt with first. 
Then Dr. Weller told police Gracie'd been hit at least 12 times beyond the initial strike. One blow shattered her nose. The rest smashed her temples, jaw, cheeks, and eyes. The only thing that wasn't covered in blood was a delicate silver watch on her wrist. The whole attack had taken no more than five or ten minutes. Police learned that Gracie had spurned the affections of a man named Doc Woods to be with Orange. Woods was picking cotton when police found him, aghast at what happened, swearing he'd been working all last evening. When police spied a dollop of blood on Doc's shirt, he was hauled in on suspicion of murder. Word spread of the arrest, with liquor-fueled men boasting they'd lynched Doc Woods right there in the city square, while simultaneously a large group of blacks were forming their own lynching party ready to take revenge on Woods themselves, if he was guilty. But the case fell apart. Examined by a doctor, the bit of blood on Woods' shirt was from an open, untreated STD on his genitalia, and the owner of the cotton farm provided a solid alibi for Woods. Then, dry goods store owner John R. Robinson showed up at the police station with his Swedish servant. Like others, she'd been sleeping in her employer's home, too frightened to be alone. When she went back to her cabin for a change of clothes, she saw her trunks ransacked, her sheets pulled apart. Clearly, someone had been there. The only thing missing was a silver, open-faced watch with a delicate chain, a gift from her father when she still lived in Sweden. There was a deafening silence as the police put it together. First, the killer broke into the Swedish girl's shanty and stole her silver watch. Then he stopped to terrorize Dr. Morris's cook. He made his way to the Dunham home and brutally killed Orange, assaulting Lucinda, Patsy, then Gracie, taking her, dragging her over a fence through several yards, and then utterly decimated her face and paused to place the silver watch on her wrist before disappearing. Was he playing games with the police, mocking them, leaving clues like breadcrumbs, saying he had all the time in the world to commit these crimes? And then the door flew open. Captain Mike Hennessy had returned. Learning of all these new developments, Hennessy and the noble detectives Himmel and Hannah headed out to speak with the sources they had been cultivating. Two days later, Hennessy called a press conference, where he announced that the Noble Commercial Detective Agency had made a break in the case. Anticipation and hope rose. Hennessy explained that they'd come across a young Black teenager, Jonathan Trigg. Trigg had been at the Black Elephant the night Mary Ramey was killed, standing next to a man, Oliver Townsend, the famous chicken thief, who was saying he was going to kill little Mary. Then, Trigg followed Townsend to Valentine Weed's house, but left before seeing what Oliver intended. Trigg also ran into Townsend the night of the attacks on Gracie, Orange, Lucinda, and Patsy at a busy intersection, speaking to another black man he didn't know. The man said to Townsend, quote, You'll be caught up with, and Townsend replied, I have been killing them all and I've not been caught up with yet, end quote. Intrigued, Trigg followed Townsend to the Dunham home, where he met another man, also unknown to Trigg. Moments later, the men went towards the servants' quarters, where Trigg heard a woman cry out, Please don't kill me! Scared senseless, Jonathan Trigg ran for his life. He hadn't gone to the police because he wasn't sure what it all meant, but then after the second time, he got it. Hennessy then held up a signed statement from Trigg affirming what he had heard and seen. But there was more. Hennessy spoke to victim Lucinda Body. She had seen Doc Woods, Gracie's former suitor, standing at the window of the servants' quarters right before the attack. Woods and Townsend were the guilty parties. Hennessy also explained the silver watch. Woods snuck away from the cotton farm in the afternoon, rode into town on a stolen horse, and took the watch from Robinson's servant quarters, hoping to give it to Gracie as a gift to win her back from Orange. When Gracie turned him down again, 
Doc got together with Townsend and they exacted his revenge. So what do you think, murder bookies? Hmm? The reporter and your host, Jill, stared in disbelief. So let me understand. A teenager had run into the killers talking freely about the murder twice, then stalked the killers to the scene of the murders twice, never being seen. No way, no way on earth did this ever happen. And it got worse for Hennessy. It came out that Trigg worked as a waiter at Hennessy's hotel. It was obvious Hennessy had met Trigg, probably bribed him to go along with this convoluted story, and then it got even worse. A reporter went to the hospital to verify what Lucinda Body told Hennessy about seeing Doc Woods and learned that Lucinda was in such severe pain she couldn't speak at all. The reporter wrote, quote, her brain matter was oozing from the wound in her skull every few minutes, end quote. Captain Mike Hennessy, you are making stuff up. He was willing to send innocent men to jail to maintain his reputation. Wow. Trying to save face, Hennessy suggested that Lucinda was delirious and misidentified Doc Woods during their conversation. And yeah, you know, maybe Trigg had exaggerated parts of uh, his story. But he adamantly maintained that Oliver Townsend was the leader of a gang of hooligans who had been murdering the city's servant women. And he was gathering more evidence to arrest another suspect, Alec Mack, who, if you recall, had already been cleared by Austin PD. Sergeant Chenevel, who now has zero faith in Hennessy, would have nothing more to do with him. So it was left to Marshal Grooms Lee to go with Hennessy to arrest Mack. Alec Mack was happy to speak with the wallman when he was grabbed and arrested. Chained to the jail floor, abused, Alec Mack refused to say anything other than he had nothing to do with these attacks and killings holding out for days. When finally released, Mack went straight to the press, accusing Marshall Lee and the noble detectives of threatening to, quote, next stretch him, end quote, meaning to hang him. Lee sternly denied the, quote, malicious falsehood with more denials from Hennessy, Hannah, and Hamill, end quote. What an absolute disaster. Mid-October, the noble detective contract was canceled. An indignant Hennessy and his men packed up and left Austin with their bloodhound. Now completely desperate, the mayor and aldermen issued a $250 reward for anyone who could provide evidence that resulted in an arrest and conviction of this force of evil in their city. A guessing game exploded with people suggesting the names of random black men living in Austin seeking to collect a reward which was easy to do because the phone book had little C's at the end of Black residents' names denoting colored. I, I had never heard this before. I just can't imagine the purpose. You don't want to talk to a Black person on the phone when you make a call. I have no idea. It makes no sense to me. But anyway, based on these tips, more arrests were made. James Thompson, who supposedly made some drunken confession, and a 14-year-old black boy was arrested for having a knife. Uh, I got to tell you, I'd probably have a knife with me because there is a murderer running around killing people. And all of them were cleared after very brief interrogations. By Halloween, the very critical newspapers were suggesting that a city incapable of governing has a limited future, flying in the face of Major Robertson's platform of the coming golden age of Austin. People lined up to buy weapons and ammo. Others went to pawn shops to buy secondhand guns. The Daily Statesman observed that, quote, it may be safely stated that Austin is the best armed city in the United States. It is probable that each home in town contains at least 14 rounds of ammunition, end quote. Men began teaching their serving women to shoot using cans and back fences as targets. More servants just left Austin. Hasta la vista, baby. To date, Molly Smith, Eliza Shelley, Irene Cross, Mary Ramey, Gracie Vance, Orange Washington had been butchered 
with axe, knives, iron rods, and bricks, losing their lives. It is not really known if any had been raped, but many were half naked with organs exposed, which could suggest some deviant sexual element to the crime. Remember, Eliza had been wrapped tightly in blankets and linens, while Gracie had the silver watch placed on her wrist. So it should be noted that serial killers do not always identically repeat, repeat, and repeat their crimes. Author Skip Hollinsworth ponders whether these women were symbolic works of art to the killer. A very interesting proposal, because I can see it, given the suggestion of staging the first killings. Also, no victim was hidden to prevent discovery. He wanted them found. He wanted them seen. And strangely, potential eyewitnesses were left alive at the scene. Walter Spencer, Eliza Shelley's three sons, Irene Cross's young nephew, Mary Ramsey's mother, Rebecca, while rendered unconscious, they were not killed. Gracie and Orange were killed, but Lucinda and Patsy lived, albeit with very serious wounds. So it began to dawn on some that these murders seemed to be, quote, carefully directed and intelligently consummated, end quote. It was the San Antonio Daily Express that suggested one man was behind the attacks calling him the Midnight Assassin, a, quote, remarkable ghoul who strikes at will all over Austin's sacred soil, end quote. No one yet understood this Jekyll Hyde personality, and this book by Robert Louis Stevenson wouldn't be published for another year. You know, today we have a task force, forensic resources, FBI criminal profiling to gain insight onto how this killer might behave. We're in 1885, so Jack the Ripper's crimes are still three years off in the future. So a person who might act perfectly normal during the day, then stalk and malignantly slay at night is just incomprehensible. How could such a killer go unnoticed? It was impossible. And we still have this problem today. Someone is arrested, like Richard Allen in the Delphi murders, and everyone gapes that he was such a nice guy, so quiet, so normal. And a reminder that Richard Allen is innocent until proven guilty in court. And this is an incredibly important part of our judicial system. Now, reading along, this was a surprise to me. The Travis County Grand Jury indicted Walter Spencer 11 months after Molly Smith's death. Remember, Walter Spencer broke through W.K.'s door, panicking he couldn't find Molly, injured himself. Now the theory was that Walter was covering his tracks and he would now stand trial. The district attorney prosecuting Spencer was 31-year-old James Robertson, the younger brother of Mayor John Robertson. Back in the 1870s, James studied law, passed bar, established his law practice, got married, began a family, the pretty normal progression. In 1884, he was elected Austin District Attorney, taking his post in January 1885. Now, in this short time in office, he had prosecuted a few felony cases and got convictions in some homicide cases, too. There is no surviving documentation on the unfolding of this Spencer indictment. Had new evidence emerged, or was a desperate mayor salvaging his foundering political career and asked his younger brother to get the case solved with some sacrificial lamb? Or was this, you know, James Robertson's idea all alone? We have no idea. But Election Day, December 8th, 1885, arrived, and the mayoral candidates were Joseph Nally versus John W. Robertson. And it came down to 53 votes, re-electing Robertson, and he remained his consistent self, trumpeting Austin's new golden age in the future, never looking better. A week later, Walter Spencer's trial began. The prosecution's theory, he caught girlfriend Molly Smith with another man and decided to get even. Fighting, either Molly hit him with the back of the axe before he wrestled it away and used it on her, or struck himself after killing Molly so he could blame it on some invader. 
nice theory, but there is no evidence pointing to Walter Spencer's guilt. Robertson rested his reasoning on Lem Brooks. If the ex-boyfriend hadn't done it, then it must be Walter. Robertson rested his case after the first day. The defense called a number of witnesses who attested to the lack of friction in the Molly-Walter relationship. Now, this is the late 19th century. We have a young black man on trial for murder with an all-white male jury. And I am relieved to tell you that justice won this day that this jury acquitted Walter Spencer. Stung, James Robertson said nothing. The mayor asked his alderman to search for an immediate replacement of Marshall Groomsley with his term ending next week. To protecting the citizens of Austin was of paramount importance. Captain James Lucy of the Texas Rangers was hired to replace Groomsley, and the people of Austin felt some relief. Life would return to normal, and the Christmas season kicked into high gear with shop owners decorating with ornaments, green and red cray paper, and holly. Elves surrounded by fake snow greeted children as a chunky citizen dressed up like Santa Claus, asking children if they had been good this past year. His first night on the job, Marshal James Lucy patrolled the streets himself, repeating this on December 23rd and 24th as people picked up their Christmas turkeys, venison, and buffalo meat, buying yule trees. Valentine Weed, Rebecca and Mary Ramey's employer, gave children Shetland pony rides. As dusk rose, Henry Stamp went about lighting the gas lights, and some went to the asylum for the blind for the traditional holiday concert. At the State Lunatic Asylum, I, that name just gets me every time, Dr. Denton held a Christmas party, eating popcorn, singing carols, as Santa passed out candy. Eventually, the night came to a close with full bellies, dousing fires and fireplaces so Santa could get down safely, and sleep settled over Austin. Marshal Lucy and Sergeant Chanville kept watch on the streets with the other officers checking saloons, walking alleys, and ensured men at brothels were behaving. Sounds too peaceful, right? Correct. About midnight, a horse came clamoring down the main thoroughfare. Alexander Wilkie, a night watchman, shouting, quote, A woman has been chopped to pieces! It's Mrs. Hancock! End quote. All right, you knew this was coming, right? Wife to Moses Hancock, a successful carpenter, Susan and Moses had two daughters. People described her as a handsome woman, a devoted wife, and white. At the Hancock house, Lucy found Moses in his long underwear, splattered with blood, kneeling next to Susan, who had two deep axe wounds, one through her cheekbone, the other sunk into her brain. Breathing erratically, blood flowing from her mouth, it was a terrible sight. Their 15 and 11-year-old daughters sobbed hysterically, and Dr. Burt arrived to inject Susan with morphine. Lucy took control of the investigation personally, taking Moses in the parlor to interview him. Upset, Moses Hancock provided a disjointed narration of the day's events. Susan had gone shopping in the afternoon. The girls went to a Christmas party with neighbors. After reading, he and Susan shared a piece of cake, going to bed between 10 and 11 p.m., sleeping in adjoining rooms as usual. The girls returned home just after 11 p.m. and headed to bed. About midnight, the noise awakened Moses, who went to his wife's chamber, seeing her trunks open, clothes strewn about, and the window was open with blood on the sill. Alert now, Moses went outside to the yard, finding Susan, and heard someone, a shadowy figure in dark clothing in the back, who jumped the fence and ran off down the alley. Screaming, Hancock threw a rock at the fleeing killer. Bringing Susan inside, neighbor Harvey Persinger went to find the night watchman, Alexander Wilkie, who took off writing, calling out the murder. Mayor Robertson was then called, with both John and James Robertson arriving at the Hancock house about the same time. Then with lanterns appeared, spreading out 
looking, searching. It was Dr. Burt's teenage son, Eugene, who spotted the bloody axe. Moses confirmed that it belonged to him and it was kept in the woodpile in the backyard. With so many looking, searching, moving, no footprints could be identified, nor did the bloodhounds pick up a scent. Then, someone was urgently galloping towards them. The night clerk for the Austin Police Department, Henry Brown, raced towards Marshall Lucy, yelling that Eula Phillips had been found with her head chopped in half on the northwest side of downtown. Shock waves exploded. Eula was a 17-year-old wife of Jimmy Phillips, the 24-year-old son of a prosperous city architect, James Phillips. Tiny, graceful, Eula, or Luli, as her friends called her, was one of Austin's most beautiful women, quote, with eyes the color of syrup, a delicate cut to her chin, a Mona Lisa-like smile, and auburn hair that she swept back from the temples and bunched in curls at the nape of her neck, end quote. Then the men sprung into action, mounting horses, carts, wagons, racing towards the Phillips home one of the finest homes in Austin, built by James Phillip himself. Eula was found on her back next to the outhouse, her nightgown pulled up to her chin. Struck directly above the nose, splitting open her forehead, she'd been struck the side of her head as well. Her blood was warm and coagulating. It appeared her nightgown had been used to drag her across the yard. He had pulled her next to the outhouse like he'd done before. What was different, Hollinsworth writes, were, quote, three small pieces of firewood have been placed almost ceremoniously on Eula's body, two across her chest and one across her stomach. Her arms had been outstretched. It was as if she was poised to look like a figure in some twisted crucifixion scene, end quote. Inside, Jimmy, unable to speak, was in bed with their 10-month-old baby, unharmed. Jimmy had a large wound just above the ear, bleeding as family doctor Joseph Cummings treated him. A bloody axe was at the foot of the bed. Mrs. Sophie Phillips told the officers about 12.15 a.m. She heard her grandson Tommy crying and went into Jimmy and Eula's room, nearly fainting seeing Jimmy wrapped in bloody sheets and Tommy in bloody nightclothes. Sophie ran to alert her husband that Jimmy was hurt and Eula was missing. And then Eula was found dead in the backyard. Lucy preserved a bloody footprint in the hall, cutting the wood from the floor. Chenneville's bloodhounds picked up a scent, only to stop abruptly once again. The midnight assassin had vanished. News of the double murder erupted across Austin. White women were now being targeted. Men gathered wives and children into one room, sitting guard with rifles ready to deal with any intruder. Others fled their homes, gathering on the main road under the lamplight, huddling together. Telegrams were sent outward, characterizing the population as being in a frenzy. Horses were spooked, sensing the fury and terror mixing in the night. Men carried all kinds of weapons, pistols, knives, pipes. A latter Houston Daily reporter would write, quote, Had a man with a speck of blood on his clothes appeared, he would have been rent in pieces. End quote. Dawn broke. Christmas Day had arrived. Gifts went unopened, meals uncooked, few went to church, the choir did not sing. Headlines screamed, bloody, 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 and the demons have transformed their thirst for blood to white women. Disbelief ruled the day. How had no one heard the women? Hadn't they screamed? These attacks had occurred while white people were still celebrating. How were they not seen? Mayor Robertson convened a public meeting with 700 men squeezing into the Texas House of Representatives chamber to consider new security measures. One demanded a cordon of sentinels to be deployed, moving in unison to question every man in their path about activities last evening, any inadequate response, and the sentinels would season. Another wanted lower-class saloons closed at 10 p.m., with someone adding brothels and gambling houses to the suggestion. A number suggested a temporary provision to, quote, 
allow for a lynching law. We would grant anyone the power to make a citizen's arrest of a murder suspect, do whatever he wanted to do to that suspect, and not suffer any legal consequences for his actions, end quote. For the record, I'm against that. Austin attorney Alexander Tarot called on everyone to let Lucy investigate. They wouldn't find a killer marching all over Austin. Finally, they decided that a Citizens Committee of Safety would raise a reward fund and assist the police investigators. Lucy was also authorized to hire 20 additional police officers, raising the number to 34. Exactly what former Marshal Grooms Lee had requested months earlier. Saloons would close from midnight to 5 a.m., and the mayor was authorized to hire real detectives this time, sending a telegram to the Chicago Pinkertons. That afternoon, a bloodhound dog handler from Hunston State Police, George Thompson, arrived with six bloodhounds, the finest in the state, the best being Bob. It was 16 hours after the killing when the dogs were brought to the Hancock and Phillips properties, finding no scent to follow. But at the Phillips house, Bob began acting oddly, barking loudly, racing inside, directly towards Eula and Jimmy's bedroom. From there, Bob bounced towards the parlor where Eula had been laid out, barking furiously. Then Bob ran outside towards the outhouse. Having no idea what Bob was on about, Thompson dragged the dog away before he frightened the ladies. Hiring the new officers. Lucy pinned badges on civilian clothes and sent them out with orders to stop strangers, demand names and addresses, and accounting of what they were doing. Members of the Sheriff's Department and U.S. Marshal's Office arrived, helping to patrol neighborhoods. But few could sleep in Austin. Most walked the floors at night, jumping at every sound, hugging rifles to themselves. No new attacks or break-ins occurred. And then we begin Part 4. December 26, 1885 to January 1886. A few weeks, huh? The story of the Austin Christmas Eve double murders went national. And amazingly, Susan Hancock was still alive, if unconscious. Eula's body remained in her home, not in a slab in the dead room at the hospital. Dr. Cummings conducted the autopsy, noting that her private parts were distended Perhaps she had had sex just before her murder. Perhaps she was violated. He couldn't say for sure. An inquest was heard without Jimmy's testimony as he was still incommunicado from the head injury. The jurors concluded that Mrs. Eula Phillips' death was result, quote, from wounds inflicted with an axe in the hands of parties unknown, end quote. Undertaker Monroe Miller came to prepare Eula's body for funeral. Her fine casket was carried by a varnished hearse drawn by black horses heading to the First Presbyterian Church where hundreds of Austin citizens lined the streets to show their respect, women weeping, men removing their hats as the procession went by. Afterward, those who hadn't already bought guns went to do so. Few people went out that evening, restaurants closing early. Drinking men went to their favorite saloons but were subdued. With the new curfew, they left early. As midnight approached, the tension was thick. Just before sunrise, a meat delivery man accidentally backed his wagon into a wall when he was making a delivery to a hotel, with black cooks screaming, murder, murder, at the top of their lungs. One hotel guest opened his window, pulled out his six-shooter and fired away, fortunately missing the delivery man and his horse. Ninety miles away in Belton, two men getting off a train were noticed to have some blood on them. Seized, they were J.T. and J.P. Norwood, who worked on a farm south of Austin. They admitted to fighting and getting their own blood on themselves. They absolutely denied being in Austin on Christmas Eve. The Belton police did not believe a single word and called Marshal Lucy saying they'd arrested the Christmas Eve killers. Whoa. Sent back on train, word already got out in Austin, riling up the city if that was even possible more than before. 
As a precaution, Marshal Lucy removed the Norwoods from the train a few stops early, smart, whisking them off to the county jail. By the time the mob marched from the depot to the jail, the deputies emerged saying that they had thoroughly investigated the Northwoods and they believed them innocent. They had been sent back to work on the farm. Scowling, unhappy faces dispersed into the dark, fearful city. Later that night, Susan Hancock died, surrounded by her husband and daughters. At the Hancock inquest, the jury found that Susan's, quote, death was the result of the effect from a fracture of the skull and from a sharp-pointed instrument driven into her right ear, inflicted by the hand or hand of persons unknown, end quote. Her funeral was held at the Methodist Church, where she was buried on high ground, located between Eula's grave and the graves of the Black serving women. This dashed the hopes of Marshall Lucy, who had hoped Susan Hancock might be able to give a description of the Midnight Assassin. More ideas for securing Austin and catching this demon were voiced, with Governor Ireland suggesting, at the first cry, the closest fire alarm should be pulled, which would draw all armed men towards the scene of the attack. All those they passed by who were not in good standing should be apprehended and given over to the police. Another idea floated was to light up the entire city with powerful electric lamps, like those had been used in New Orleans at the New Orleans Exposition. Exasperated, Mayor Robertson begged for patience and divulged some badly needed good news. The Pinkerton detectives were on their way. Trying to live normally was hard for Austin residents, but some attended the opening of Gilbert and Sullivan's The Mikado, starring famous operatic diva from New York City, Emma Abbott, who had a personal bodyguard while in town. The Mikado features a young Japanese man who risks being beheaded over his love for a woman, and it was well-received, although it did strike an uneasy chord with the beheading threat and all. The next play to begin just after New Year's was Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. So the ruler is stabbed to death on the Ides of March? Yeah, very few tickets were sold. Very few. But then the Pinkertons arrived, the greatest detectives in America. Another little context to remember. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle didn't write about Sherlock Holmes until 1892, six years away, although magazine stories did begin in 1887, which is next year in our mystery story. So whisking the Pinkertons to the mayor's office, a thrilled Mayor Robertson handed them a contract which guaranteed them $3,300 for three months' work, which they happily signed. Now, Skip Hollinsworth makes some educated guesses at what happens next in the mayor's office, and I happen to agree with what he says. Sitting down, getting some cigars out of the humidor, John Robertson probably asked them about their famous bosses, dad and founder Alan Pinkerton and sons William and Robert Pinkerton. And the response being, quote, we don't work for William and Robert Pinkerton, they said. Robertson just stared at them. No, the detectives continued. We work for Matt Pinkerton. There must have been a very long silence. Who, the mayor finally asked, is Matt Pinkerton, end quote. Oh my God, no, 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 no. If this wasn't so impossibly terrible, it would be funny. And I'm weird, so I howled reading this. So, back on December 25th, when the mayor sent the telegram to the Pinkerton agency, he assumed that it would be delivered to, you know, the famous Pinkerton detective agency. I mean, what would anyone else expect? But Robertson didn't write out the whole address. And the delivery boy brought the telegram to Pinkerton and Company, U.S. detective agency, run by Matt Pinkerton, who had nothing to do with the real Pinkertons, although he briefly worked there as a night watchman and was fired in 1882 for incompetence. But not deterred, Matt Pinkerton opened his own detective agency, 
declaring that he'd made a number of exceptional arrests due to his natural talent as a detective. Positively spitting bullets, the real Pinkertons describe Matt Pinkerton as a con man who is using his last name to confuse the public. Nevertheless, Matt Pinkerton was hired by people who weren't aware, like Mayor Robertson. Matt Pinkerton had never investigated a homicide, nor was Matt Pinkerton in Austin. These fake Pinkertons were in Austin, and they were likely graduates of Matt's correspondence school and were mailed a certificate of completion, a Pinkerton badge, and a letter of credentials and graduation. So, blunder of all blunders. If it got out that the mayor had wasted an enormous amount of tax dollars on the wrong Pinkerton detectives, he would be finished. So Mayor Robertson buttoned his lips and rolled with it. Introducing the fake Pinkerton to Sergeant Cheneville and Marshal Lucy, they reviewed all the evidence and facts. The detectives then headed out to do their own investigation, up streets, through crime scene backyards, eating at the best restaurants, this paid for by Mayor Robertson. When they met the chairman of the Citizens Committee of Safety, Alexander P. Woolridge, he immediately saw that these gentlemen had no idea how to solve murders any more than anyone else. Woolridge immediately called a meeting, suggesting they offer a huge reward for information leading to the arrest of the killers. Someone knew something, so a big enough reward would flush out the killers. It was decided they'd offer $1,000 to anyone who provided information on the murder of Eula Phillips, $1,000 to anyone who provided information on the murder of Susan Hancock, and $1,000 to anyone who provided information leading to the arrest of a person who killed the five black servant women. Posters with reward, $3,000, went up all over Austin and in the papers. Governor Ireland got into the act, offering the same deal at $300. Now that is a lot of money in 1886. You could buy a farm and a nice house and have some left over. And Woolridge was correct. Tips did flood in. And the vast majority offered up information on black men. But one tip said a white man was seen washing bloody clothes in a creek just outside Austin. Jumping on this, police found a poor white wood hauler, J.D. Eccles, who was washing pecan-stained clothes. Nothing more. Another tip implicated a Mexican, Anastasio Martinez, who lived next to the dump, picking through trash that caught his attention. On Christmas Day, Martinez was seen carrying women's apparel. Checking out Martinez, the police found female clothing, white cell handkerchiefs, but also an old six-shooter, seven butcher knives, a small ice pick, and long iron spike, which could have been driven into the ears of Mary Ramy and Mrs. Hancock. Disoriented, rambling in Spanish, Martinez supposedly said he was, quote, told and ordered by the Almighty to go out at night and draw blood, end quote. Or at least that's what the non-Spanish-speaking officers thought he said. But none of the clothes or handkerchiefs belonged to Eula or Susan. And they took Martinez to the state lunatic asylum, placing him in Dr. Denton's care. At a loss, Marshal Lucy ordered that all hobos and vagrants be taken to the city limits or forced them into boxcars headed out of Austin. This did little to make residents feel better. New Year's Eve came with very, very few festivities although Governor Ireland did host an open house with 300 of Austin's most prominent in attendance. Celebrating was limited to huddle whispering of people downing expensive liquor. Sleep was a limited commodity as well, with women going to bed fully dressed in case they had to flee. Men slept with pistols. More talk suggesting the midnight assassin, as he was regularly called now, was a single man increased. Since Dr. Denton had removed all the high fencing around the lunatic asylum, could someone be sneaking out at night, coming into town, and murdering women? Others noticed the killings happened right before or after the full moon, so the serious suggestion was made that it was a werewolf. Yeah, I kid you not. 
The Fort Worth Gazette article suggested the killer was a real-life version of Frankenstein, written by Mary Shelley in 1823. A headline in the Joseph Pulitzer-owned New York World read, quote, Those extraordinary and similar assassinations of women at Austin, facts as marvelous as the most extravagant fiction, end quote. Detailing the killings, he points out that not one woman had cried out before the attack, quote, Death came always swiftly, silently, and certainly, end quote. The intriguing part of the story was the lack of motivation. Normally, it's money, passion, revenge, right? Quote, but here in the 19th century, these crimes seem to have nothing to palliate their naked brutality and gaping wounds. As yet, the ablest detective can advance no satisfactory theory to account for their commission. End quote. Further, this reporter rejected the gang of evil blacks theory, nor was the killer some hardened criminal or saloon drunk who would surely have given himself away by now. If police are watching the city's worst and the attacks continued, it is not the city's most hardened criminals committing the murders. Well, I totally agree with this reporter. He also writes that, quote, the only logical conclusion was that a cunning maniac of great strength, fleetness of foot, and superior intellect was doing the foul deeds. The maniac was able to plot these crimes, carry them out in every particular, without a mistake, and then disappearing into thin air almost immediately. He most likely had a secret hiding place where he went after each murder so he could clean off his victim's blood and change clothes before returning chameleon-like, to the streets, looking like just one more man in the crowd, one man hiding in plain sight, end quote. And the reporter concluded that what this killer was doing was not just a different form of murder, but a different form of thinking. Quote, he may well give to history a new story of crime, the first instance of a man who killed in order to gratify his passion. End quote. Bingo! This guy wins the prize for original thinking. He is absolutely spot on. In the Daily Statesman, letters to the editor were published. One resident had read about a British doctor who was murdering people at night, and he was probably referring to the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which had just been published. But maybe Austin doctors should be looked into which triggered even more paranoia and fear. Can you imagine that for a year this has been going on, incomprehensible killings out of the blue, a phantom disappearing into the night who cannot be caught? Other newspapers suggested that people planning to visit Austin? Yeah, cancel your trip. Further, moving from Austin to their cities or states was part of a promotional campaign by the Laredo Times, claiming that Laredo, quote, would provide a safe and quiet breathing spell, end quote, for murder. Whoa, talk about kicking people when you're down, as Austin's reputation is sinking into the quagmire. And then, new information. A man, Thomas Bales, shows up at City Hall with information that Eula Phillips had been living a secret life. And you'll have to wait and hear more about that in the next episode because that concludes part two, the remarkable ghoul, the midnight assassin, panic scandal, and the hunt for America's first serial killer by Skip Hollinsworth. Such a different story. All right, the conclusion of this trilogy, episode 55, second cast, Damnable and Hellish Crime will be out in two weeks, continuing the story of the hunt for this killer and the victims he leaves behind. The twists and turns are just unbelievable. And you're not going to believe where this goes next. Eula's Secret Life. And my next book, The Last Time We Saw Her by Robert Scott. Blonde, beautiful, 19-year-old Brooke Weiberger was raised in a close-knit and religious family. On a summer morning in Oregon, while cleaning lampposts at an apartment complex managed by her sister, Brooke vanished. 
her family suffered not knowing Brooke's fate, and the investigation would turn over every rock, but it was going to take years to find out what had happened to her and a number of other young women. All right, I always say read the book, and this is no exception. Thank you for listening. You guys can email me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Check out my merch store on Spreadshop and happy reading murder bookies. Source material, show notes, photographs, snack, drink information for the Midnight Assassin trilogy are found on my blog. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved, music by Carl Hosanna, and lyrics by Otto Harbaugh.